Oh, it is good to be here on Easter. We are working through this series on the unfolding drama of redemption, and, and uh, what a fitting time as we look at God's plan of redemption. And we've talked about several different uh, amazing uh, points of history uh, as we've come through the Word to this point, and we've even uh, gotten a few that we could have added to it that we didn't, but that's because we only had like eight weeks to get through but when I think of a story, and I think of a good story, every good story has a climax. Uh, one of the books that I remember reading when I was in high school that I really enjoyed was The Odyssey. If you've ever read The Odyssey, you know about uh, 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 the adventures of Odysseus and his return voyage from the Battle of Troy. And, and, and the, the climax is when he arrives back at, at, at the uh, uh, location, uh, everyone thinks he's dead. And there's just this moment where there's question about whether Penelope is going to find out that her husband is alive and the only one that knows is his son. And at this very climax, you never know which way it's going to go. A good story has a climax. And when we celebrate Easter, we come to the greatest climax in the story of redemption. The story of, uh, as we came to Friday, where you're, you're looking at the story and you're like, oh no, the hero's dead. And we await, and on Sunday we find that he has risen from the dead. And it's the greatest climax, the greatest part of a story ever told. It is a story that is copied. If you look at any good story, they always copy the story of God's redemption. The plan is always the same. This morning I want to look at Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 4 through 7 and we're going to break this down and, and see because as I looked at this story and I think of the entire story as a whole, I think of how incredibly uh, uh, magnificent the story really is. Because as we read Galatians 4, you'll see that it is that the story comes with this final plot that is executed to absolute perfection. And in the immortal words of Hannibal Smith, I love it when a plan comes together. Some of you did not get that, and that's okay. Good for you. But this plan was perfection, and we're going to walk through this passage, and I want to show you this morning uh, three ways that I believe this plan was absolutely executed to perfection. So in Galatians chapter 4, Paul, in writing to the church of Galatia, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Let's pause there, because as we look at this plan and we talk about the perfection of the plan, there's something you need to understand. Number one, the plan was perfect in that it was the perfect moment. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. The reality here is that at the exact right moment, and, and the word fullness means that when the time was absolutely critical and it was absolutely perfect, God sent forth His Son. This plan wasn't just coincidental. 
And we looked at some of that even last week, how the Holy Spirit led Simeon and Anna to be at the temple at the exact right time. You can look throughout the history of the stories of the Word. We looked uh, last, uh, uh, what, November at the book of Ruth and all the incredible happenstance of the stories where they just happened to be there at the exact right time. God's timing is always perfect. And when we look at the timing here, the fullness of time, it is the exact right mixture for the perfection of this plan it is the perfect moment. It's perfect because of three things. Number one, the commonality of language. You see, since the Tower of Babel, language had been diversified. Language was, was split and, and everybody spoke different languages throughout the known world. And here we have at a time in history, which is incredible. I love history. I love to read about history, and I will promise you this, that because it's history, it's his story, there is no event in history that is ever isolated. Every single one plays in to the plan of God's redemption. You can talk about, about a, 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 an event such as the Battle of Thermopylae, which is this military conquest of the Persians coming in to overtake the world, and 300 Spartans, along with some other uh, Greeks, came and defended this pass, and all 300 died this heroic death. And what's incredible is that that later impacted this very story. Because no story in history is isolated. You see, later on, several hundred years later, a man by the name of Alexander was born, and at age 12, he told a Persian envoy that he would conquer them as a people because of their disgrace of how they treated Leonidas. So Alexander then went and conquered the known world, and guess what happened? The world was united for the first time under a common language. Moments of history. The commonality of language brought together the despair of a nation was the second factor. You have the nation of Israel, which is such a picture of humanity that is, that is uh, constantly being found as God's chosen people, but then put under bondage and slavery in a cycle throughout the, the Word of God. You have moments where Adam and Eve sinned and fell into to despair because they were uh, then kicked out of the garden in bondage to slavery and sin. And then uh, God promises them that He would one day send a Savior. In Genesis 3.15, we read that, that there would be this first promise made of the covenant that would come, and He would make a covenant with Abraham, and then uh, Isaac would be born, and then of Isaac would come Jacob, and Jacob, whose name would become Israel. And from that, you would have the twelve tribes of Israel. And in those tribes, you, you find the, the story in Genesis of them being uh, taken into Egypt. And later on, we know that they become slaves to the Egyptians. And an Old Testament redeemer pops up and redeems them. Moses pulls them out of the promised land. And then nation, they would become a nation with a king after king. And eventually, they'd be sent into exile. And then they would be brought back. And what would happen again? Roman enslavement. It's the, the, the picture of humanity, is it not? That, that the human condition, oppression and slavery to sin. And, and, and not only do we have the despair of nations, but this perfect moment comes together as they're back under oppression under Rome. They have a commonality of language because they all speak Greek, but you also have the last and, and most important significant part of this perfect moment. The emptiness of religion. I'm amazed when I read through the New Testament. 
when I read through the Gospels. You know, here you have uh, the nation of Israel, a chosen people, the Jewish religion, and it's found to be empty and wanting and lacking. And, and we just mentioned last week that there was 400 years of silence. And suddenly, uh, Jesus comes on the scene, and you look at this time frame. It was, it was a time of emptiness of religion because it was, number one, it was corrupt. You had religious leaders who were absolutely despicable. Uh, I'm amazed at the stupidity of the religious leaders that they would get angry and upset when Jesus would heal somebody on the Sabbath. Just reading last week about, about this account where Jesus heals somebody and they get angry. He heals Lazarus from the dead. And, and what do they say? They go and plot how to kill Lazarus because Jesus healed him. This is the leadership at that time. It was corrupt. It was, it was vain. It was bondage because they were filled with nothing but the law. The law just kept pouring weight upon weight upon weight on them. In Romans, we read the reality of that, that law where it says, at, after this long section about the condition of humanity and how there is no one that does good, then we get to Romans 3, 19 and 20, and it says, but the law can make no one righteous. And this is what the people lived under. Emptiness. In Matthew 23, it talks about how the, the Pharisees would tie up heavy burdens on men's shoulders and not lift a finger to help them. This was the religious leaders. It was corrupt. It was, it was filled with bondage. It was hopeless because it was never enough. Jesus said to the Pharisees and to the crowd as he preached on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you see these religious leaders? Unless your righteousness exceeds them, you'll never enter the kingdom. Hopeless. Never enough. Jesus said that many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. All of this culminating into this one moment. And, and, and as they looked at the emptiness of their religion, I think the thing that probably speaks the most to me is as they looked to the temple in this place of worship, they would go there and offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And in Hebrews, it clearly tells us that those sacrifices were nothing but a constant reminder of sin. And into this, Paul says, born into this moment of time, that the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. God likes to make an incredible step into history. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Truth has been revealed. The moment of history had culminated into this one time where the despair of the human condition, the, the hopelessness of this empty religion all culminates together. And I wonder today if we're not in the same moment. I mean, we have the commonality of language, do we not? With the internet prevailing that you could say something today and it could be heard across the world. We have a time where so many churches are filled with empty religious practices that have no meaning and no, 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 no real significant change to the heart. It's almost as if the words of Jesus when He was speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious goers of His day are still true today, that they worship Me with their mouths but their hearts are far from me 
And we look across the world with, with countless unnecessary violence and murders and various things, and we say the despair of the nations is real. And we're reminded that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. It was the perfect moment. But the plan was perfect not just because of the moment. It goes on, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. It was the perfect method, too. God's plan wasn't just perfectly timed. It was the perfect method. You know, I think of, uh, I'm, I'm training for the stupid thing that I committed to, the Spartan race. And it's amazing how many diet plans there are and how many workout plans there are. These guys are sending me these emails with workout plans, and I need like a decipher on how to even understand what they are. you got to do these 20 mountain climbers or thrusters or something, and I'm like, I don't know. What's the best plan? How do you prepare for something like this? And I think of today in in. Christianity and in religions today, everybody's got their plan. What's the best plan to get to heaven? And everybody just, you know, if we can all just do it our way, we'll get there just fine, right? But see, there's a problem. And the problem of history is this, that since we are unholy, violators of God's law from the very beginning in Genesis we're told very quickly about Adam and Eve and how that has been passed on after generation after generation and so the problem is this how do we who are unholy and righteous meet with a holy and righteous God who punishes sin how does a holy and righteous God justify condemn sinners I mean, if we are required to meet with Him, we've got a problem. In, in, in Exodus 33, God, in speaking to Moses, it says, no one can see my face and live. In John, we read about how this very same concept that, that no one has seen God's face. The only God. So how does, it, how does this plan work to perfection? The solution, Paul says it in declaring it to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he declared that the saying is trustworthy, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. You see, the reality is that we cannot go to God as, as we can read throughout Romans and we can read throughout the New Testament. Who can ascend into the heavens? Who can go to the depths? But, but only God. And the reality is what we need in all of this is a mediator, somebody to step between us and a holy God. And so the perfect plan came together with the perfect method. And the method was this. He connected with us. He came, right? That's what we celebrate at Christmas time, that Jesus Christ came and He lived. It says in John chapter 1, verse 14, that He became flesh and dwelt among us. He connected with us so that He could relate to man. That's the only possibility that, that God Himself knew that we could not come to Him so He would come to us. What a perfect method that He would come. Emmanuel, God with us, He came, He descended, He condescended into humanity. 
It says in Hebrews, this incredible passage, that we need a mediator, we need a priest, and, and that's what the Old Testament religion was all about, that we could not go to God, so we'd go to a priest, and the priest could meet on our behalf. But it, it, it says over and over again in Hebrews that this mediator, the priest, was not even good enough. It was what we could come up with through the law, and it was not sufficient. And so we have in Hebrews chapter 4 this incredible passage talking about our high priest in Jesus. It says in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the Son of God let us hold fast our confession why for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin let us then with confidence draw near to his throne and find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need this is our mediator he connected with us. He completed what we could not do. You have this, this law which cannot be changed. In fact, there are some who look at this and say, well, the Old Testament's no good because Jesus came, He changed everything, and we don't need the Old Testament anymore. That is absolutely false. The law is still the law. It is still valid. It is still in effect. It can never be changed. It'll never be thrown out. In fact, Jesus Himself, when He came, He said, don't think that I've come to destroy it or to abolish it. I didn't come to do that. I came to fulfill it, to complete it. You see, here's the issue we have, and this is why this plan is so incredible, that the law was there, and that was our means of getting to heaven. There are really two means to get to heaven. I know that you're going to pick up your stones right now, but this is the fact. There are two ways to get to heaven. Complete, perfect, 100% obedience to the law of God, or a mediator who would take our punishment and sin for us. And here's the incredible nature of this plan that God, Jesus came and he said, you cannot do it, I will do it for you. I'm going to relate to you, and I'm going to speak on human terms, and I'm going to be 100% human and 100% God, which is something that just I cannot fathom. And he lived a perfect life of obedience so that his offering, that when he would die on a cross, which we celebrate last Friday and, and, and Thursday when we had our service and we talk about this incredible nature, the passion of Jesus, and, and, and the reality is that his offering becomes our substitute and do not ever forget that. That is the most important point of the gospel, that Jesus Christ substituted himself for us. Without that, we have no salvation. As Paul would write to the Corinthians, he says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. And he substituted, he completed it. He connected with us, he completed it, and he conciliated. Not consolidated, he conciliated, he won the victory. He won back his people. We get the word reconciliation, regain back. That's what reconciliation is, that there is a relationship that has been broken between God and man, and that was the Garden of Eden experience where man had to be separated from God, and Jesus Christ comes and he reconciles men to himself, and he offers his sacrifice to all who would believe, and those who believe, he then reconciles, and he makes them right again with God, and he redeems them by his blood. He purchases them back. John 1.29, John speaks of this in John the Baptist. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And in Ephesians, Paul writes to, to the church in Ephesus, he says that you are redeemed, having redemption by the blood of God. These are absolutely pivotal in understanding the perfection of God's method, that he saw a problem and he knew that we could not do it, so what does God do? When the fullness of time has come, the perfect moment, uh, God sends forth his son, born of a woman, so that he could relate to us under the law, so that he could fulfill and complete the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law. It's the perfect method. But what I love about this passage, and what I love about Easter, as we talk about this incredible nature, that God, in the moment we talk about the plan of redemption, the grand scheme of things, that the curtain has raised up, and now we have this moment where we look in and we see an empty tomb. And what does that mean? It means that God had the perfect plan, and it was executed at the perfect moment, under the perfect method, and it comes to a perfect measure. Not just a temporary solution, but a permanent one. What does he say? Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And since we are sons... God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, whereby we might cry, Abba, Father. And if we are sons, you are no longer slaves. And listen to this. But if you are a son, you are an heir through God. Brothers and sisters, this measure is incredibly perfect. Do you understand why we celebrate Easter? It's because we can be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And it means that we can be bought and that we can be adopted as children of God. This measure is so incredible. It is infinite. You cannot exhaust the measure of God's redemption. Who are we? And I've heard this said many times, God could never redeem me. What kind of God do we serve if he cannot redeem a person? If God wanted to, he can redeem Hitler, he can redeem Stalin, he can redeem Charles Manson, he can redeem me. That's the infinity of God's plan and the measure of which he offers eternal life to those who would believe. And you cannot exhaust it. It is limitless because it is finished. His dying words on the cross in John 19, verse 30 are, it is finished. Those are words of comfort to me because I realize that no matter what I do, even now, having been born again, I cannot remove my adoption. They are words of conquest because He has defeated sin and death and He has risen from the dead. They are words of completion. Brothers and sisters, the law of sin and death has been conquered and they are completed. It is infinite. It is limitless because it is finished. It is also limitless because He has risen from the dead. We talked about that high priest, that need for a mediator, someone to go between us and God. In Hebrews, again, the author says that consequently, we have a mediator who lives forever and therefore is able to intercede forever on our behalf. Let that sink in. 
that when we start to talk about the need of God in our lives and we start to think about the things that we are currently doing in our sin, we can understand this very fact that He always lives to always intercede for us. And you cannot exhaust that. It is infinite. But I love what Paul says here in Galatians 4, because it's not just that it's infinite, that we have been given an adoption tells me that it is intimate. It is intimate. It's no wonder that John in his epistle, in verse 1 of chapter 3, 1 John 3, 1, he says, Bar none, my favorite verse in the New Testament, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We are His children because He has risen from the dead and He offers this adoption. We read the the verse that everybody knows and everybody quotes and you see it online all the time. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him shall have eternal life. Romans 5.8 declares the intimacy of God that he says, but God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do I need to read Romans 8, 31 through 39 for you about the love of God and his compassionate and, uh, and passionate proclamation for you as his children and that you will never be forsaken? And if God has offered his own son for you, how much more will he do for you when you need him? And that nothing can separate you from the love of God. It's adoption. It's out of love that has no limits. It is intimate. And this perfect measure is, is, is infinite. It's intimate. And it truly is incredible. Did, did, you, did you read what Paul says here? Whereby... We have been given the Spirit of His Son. Last week in community group, we were talking about the Holy Spirit and how it worked in the Old Testament with the Old Testament saints. You realize that the Holy Spirit didn't indwell people until Pentecost. And so in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody and and they would have a moment and they would have some some time to to either prophesy or do something incredible that God was doing. And, And so they would have the Holy Spirit come upon them and then would ascend away. And what we found amazing was in 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 the account of John the Baptist being born, it said that the Holy Spirit was with him inside the womb. And that just blows my mind when I start to think about that and how if we understand how the Holy Spirit works in in the Old Testament and now we can look at all this and we say, man, that must have been incredible for John the Baptist. No wonder why he did such incredible things and that Jesus said of John the Baptist, no man born of woman is as great as John the Baptist. And now we come to this moment, though, where it says Jesus also said, but he will be least in the kingdom of heaven. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit comes on those who are now in the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, that should be a wow, oh my. That we have the Spirit of God's Son in us because of this, because we have been given an an adoption. 
It is incredible that His Spirit of His Son is in our hearts. And, and when I go back to that verse in 1 John 3, 1, it is an exclamation, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. And in Romans 8, verses 15 and 17, we are told the power of this. It says, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. So what does all this have to do with Easter and the resurrection? None of it happens if Jesus doesn't raise from the dead. Nothing we're not even talking about this. But, but the reality is that God's perfect plan was at this perfect moment with a perfect method, with a perfect measure poured out for us. And as God does so, part of the plan is that not only does He offer Himself as a sacrifice, but He raises from the dead to constantly and forever, eternally offer us what we need. Intercession. I challenge you with this morning as you look at this is can you see the perfection of God's plan? Can you, can you see what Paul sees? But when the fullness of time had come that God sent forth His Son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Can you see the perfection of that? What's holding you back? If you don't know Jesus this morning, if, if you are not part of this plan of redemption, today is the day what is holding you back. Look at the perfection of it. Nobody has ever had any sort of perfected plan of how we can get to heaven. Every religion tries, but there is something that Christianity offers that no other religion offers in the world. And I can promise you this. No other religion has a Savior that has risen from the dead. They're all dead in graves. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. They're all dead. But we have a Savior who has risen. He is alive today and He offers this to anyone who would believe. And what an incredible thing. Because this plan came together at a time when humanity needed it. That there is despair in the hearts of men that every single human being out there knows that they are a sinner. They know that there's something wrong. They can deny God and Jesus all they want, but the reality is our conscience bears witness. Conscience from two Latin words, con and science, with knowledge. It's amazing that children, when they steal a cookie, they know it's wrong even before they're told. I find it fascinating that if you do, if you look at the studies done universal, that countries or that, 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 that unreached tribes even know when you go there, you'll find that they have basic morals that they follow. You don't steal, you don't kill, you don't commit adultery. Those are basic morals that, that unreached, uncivilized 
cultures know. Why? Because the, the law of God is written on men's hearts. And there's a problem, and the problem is we need to get that rectified with God, and God has said, I have the perfect plan. And here it is. And the reality is that we will all die, as, as in Hebrews, there's, there's statistics out there that show 10 out of 10 people die. And, and Hebrews tells us in verse 27 of chapter 9 that it is appointed a man once to die and after that to face the judgment. And the question that I believe will be asked is, what did you do with my plan? Perfection laid out, offered. We didn't even have to do it. And the reality is that as you look through the book of Acts, the foundation of the church, when people would come and hear the sermons that were preached, they would all say the same thing, what must we do to be saved? And the answer was, repent and believe. It's that simple. Repent, turn from the way you are going and acknowledge that He is the one and believe. Brothers and sisters, as we look at this plan, as we celebrate Easter, as we spend time today with family and friends, I want us to consider the perfection of God's plan and worship Him. You had to do literally nothing for your salvation. He did all the work. And it was glorious. And when we celebrate His resurrection, we ought to be having a spirit and a heart of utter worship for the glory of who He is. And we ought to then walk with humility in service for Him, seeking to proclaim the message of this great plan to those who do not understand it or know it so that they can be a part of His kingdom. We are now in that perfect moment. And there are still those out there who do not know His redemption and they seek it and they need it. And we have the truth of God proclaimed for us in Galatians chapter 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive an adoption as children. And if we are sons, then... God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts whereby we cry, Abba, Father, Papa. So you are no longer a slave, but you are sons. And if sons, an heir, an heir to what? The kingdom of God. Can you imagine we're told by Paul that we are co-heirs with Christ? Why aren't we sharing that with everyone. We should be. And sometimes we do, and sometimes we walk this out and we forget in the life that we are living the moment of the incredible nature of God's perfect plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that You Redeem those who come to you. We thank you that as we celebrate Easter, we rejoice because you are great and glorious and you have offered so much for us and you offer to us eternal life. 
We thank you that in the midst of what we live today, your perfect plan comes into our life exactly when you plan it. And it perfectly covers all of our sin. You declare in your word that you take our sins and you cast them as far as the east is from the west. And then you adopt us as your children to show that the measure of your love is limitless and it can never be taken away. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that does not know you, that has not been adopted as your child, Lord, I pray that today that they would realize that you offer a perfect plan. You offer a plan that, that they can receive. They can receive it right here, right now. And Lord, I pray that as we celebrate Easter, we celebrate a risen Savior. We celebrate that the tomb was empty because death could not contain Him. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Where is your victory? It is in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts would rejoice and worship you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to take communion this morning. What a fitting time that as we celebrate what Jesus did for us, and we think back to that moment in the upper room where Jesus had gathered his disciples, and in Luke, Jesus says that he earnestly longed to have that time with them. In Jewish culture, uh, breaking of bread was a matter of fellowship. It was a matter of family and friends being together and to celebrate being a part of a family. Holidays are often the time where we gather together with family and we, we celebrate a connectedness. Whether it's biological or even adoption. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said that whenever you partake of the elements, the, the bread and the cup, you do show the Lord's death till He comes. You do declare that you are a part of that family, that you have fellowship with Jesus Christ. And what we say here at this church is that we welcome you if you are a part of God's family. If Jesus is your Savior, if you have that relationship with Him, we welcome you to participate with us as our family, the family of God. But if you don't know Jesus, this is meaningless. There's no point to it for you. It's just a wafer and a cup. But it can be today. For the family, we take time to consider, is my relationship with God right at this moment? Is there sin in my life that I need to take care of? Because I don't want to go before my Father, the one who loves me so much, with sin in my life. I don't want to go before Him with a broken relationship that, that, that there's no communication with Him right now. And so Paul said, let a man examine himself before he comes and he partakes. And so I'd encourage you as a family, to do that. And when you feel like the Lord is, is calling you and you feel ready to come, you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And you say, I believe. And I celebrate that the tomb was empty, that He rose from the dead. And if you're sitting here today and you don't know Him, you can right now.
doesn't have to be in a special place or at a special time. The psalmist said, today is the day of salvation. Make haste. Come and let this be your first communion with the Lord. They're going to play, and when you feel ready, you just come on up. Come as family, pray together, and we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus.